is a, a movement in Italy called the slow food movement, which is all about that. That it's the antithesis to fast food. And that slow food is all about growing things properly, preparing them well, taking time to consume them with family and friends. And wine fits into that really well because it you do, you need to take time. Sit down, helps digestion, helps loosen people up a little bit, as long as you don't overdo it. And that, that's a message that we grew up with all the time. We, wine was always available to us. I'm convinced that part of the, the binge drinking culture that we have in New Zealand stems from the early prohibition times when it was impossible to get a drink or if you if you wanted to have a drink you had from when you knocked off at five o'clock until six o'clock that's the only time you can go to the pub and have a drink and of course they just crammed it in drank as much as they could you know it, it's just nuts absolute nuts and when when they went to um, 10 o'clock closing the people who opposed it the most were the brewers because they realised people would drink less. They'd take longer to do it. They wouldn't do the binge drink. And it was dead right too. Every, every time liquor consumption in New Zealand has been more liberalised, it's resulted in a decrease in consumption. People don't, don't, don't remember that, you know, with, with, with all the publicity about certain events and drink, binge drinking and people in pubs late at night and all that kind of stuff comes to the fore, people want to restrict it more. But in fact, if you liberalise it, normalise it to a point where people don't abuse it, then it, it becomes irrelevant. That was Michael Brakovich. This is Dougat, the podcast. Welcome to episode 25 of Dug It with the Brakoviches, Michael and Paul. And there's also Millen and Mariana and Malba who were unable to join us. Well, even Paul had to leave halfway through, but got uh, Michael there, uh, New Zealand's first master of wines with that uh, wonderful insight. Love that intro. I was kind of a bonus to get Michael. I thought it was just going to be my Paul and myself and I'm... Um, and the, the story started flowing. <laughs> Didn't even end up drinking any wine. I was actually fasting before this conversation. And uh, and I read this, listened to this podcast last week with Tim Ferriss about one of the great interviewers. Oh, his name escapes me for a moment, but uh, he had the he had an interview, and he he was fasting too to to be really sharp for the interview. And he as soon as he turned up, he got offered a welcome into this guy's home and offered. You know, some really nice whiskey and he turned it down for water and just kind of ruined the whole dynamics of the the talk so I was like I better have something to eat just beforehand and uh but we ended up just having a, a yeah it was a great little chat um while they were busy at work and so it was uh really appreciated the time for uh, Michael and Paul to sit down and share just some amazing insights and and stories into I mean, just like, I love that drinking culture piece that he talked about, um, 
the, the philosophy and the ideas around wine and drinking and it's a family thing to be shared with food and friends and enjoyed and a lifestyle to be not taken too seriously and it's just they're just making a drink as Michael would say and uh, and how you can enjoy it in moderation and that's how they grew up and from um, their roots in Croatia and their family who came out to, to work mining gum tree which I didn't or mining the gum out of uh, I think it's the curry trees he talks about and uh, and then buying this land in Kumu and then, and then and then building this winery which is one of the best in the world uh, and it talks about the blind tasting they did like the movie Bottle Shock and how they bet all the best of the French Burgundies in every uh, flight of wine and the only one they didn't they were first equal and at a fraction of the price of some of these kind of established names so they're really creating a product that everyone can share and, and sample and um, and it's a really uh a beautiful insight into the winemaking process and and some of their philosophies and and what it's like to run a family business and yeah it's it's uh, super inspired at the moment was lucky to go to Tony Robbins last week too and really pick up some of his wisdom and particularly working with masters and finding mentors the best of the best in their field and I think Michael's one of those the master of wine certification he has I think less people there's maybe only a couple hundred people in the world with it and less people have been you know, to space, or more people have been to space than, than had the certificate, so he's a held in high esteem, and some great stories about meeting Robert Moldavi, um, and Davi, and, uh, and taking New Zealand to the world uh, through, through wine, and the connection to nature, and producing something that's really boutique, and has a craft, and an art, and a science behind it, so, uh, whew. Yeah, it's about 3 a.m. I've got to get up in a couple of hours to teach, but yeah, taking this, feeding off the energy of Tony Robbins and really trying to make things happen um, and keep the momentum up and hold myself accountable and, and put these and you know, prioritize what's important to me in sharing, sharing this information is. So, trying to get it out for you. And if you enjoy it, share it with others, comment. Um, just really appreciate the love. And uh, hopefully you can get out to Kumi River and enjoy and, and try a glass of their Chardonnay, maybe with some uh, fine New Zealand seafood and uh, hopefully with a few friends as well. And uh, as always, hope you dug it. Think less, experience more. Have a glass of wine, everything in moderation, including moderation. And uh, we will hear from you soon. Here's Michael and Paul. Bon appetito. Including our mother Melba. Oh, Melba, yeah. So the, the other two siblings are my sister Mariana and uh, brother Milan. Cool. What's the for those listening at home? What's uh, the roles in the the family? Who does who does what? <laughs> well, Mum is in overall charge. Yes, uh, <laughs> she's the managing director. 
Um, I look after so. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> Michael looks after winemaking. He's a, Michael's a winemaker. He also has the distinction of being New Zealand's first master of wine, which he achieved in 1989. And then um, Millen is an engineer who looks after all the vineyards and um, and uh, growers that we deal with in Kumu. Um, I, I'm the one that looks after the sales and marketing, which <laughs> Michael's trying to steal a minute ago. And um, Mariana um, looks after finances and also is in marketing as well. So um, everybody crosses over into other roles mostly, but um, generally, you know. Oh, very cool. And, um... And uh, so the, the winery is Kumi River Winery, and it was a, a previous name before that, correct? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So if I go right back in history, uh, it was my father, Matty Brykovich, who started the winery in 1944. So his parents bought the land here at that time. They were former gum diggers from up north, and they moved to Auckland late 30s, early 40s, uh, worked in, around, in and around Henderson and other vineyards and wineries and, and orchards until they had saved enough money to buy this property where we are now. So there was a £200 down payment in the 1940s to, to buy this property. They, they had it all paid off by the mid-50s. Uh, oh. Dad got married to Mum in 1958 and... Um, then us kids came along in the 60s. But it was then known as uh, San Marino Vineyards. And uh, the connection with San Marino, he was a, a saint, Marinus the Dalmatian, who was uh, being chased from Dalmatia by, by the Ottomans, the, uh, the Islamic people from Turkey, as they came up through, um, through the, the Croatian part of uh, what, what, what was Yugoslavia. So he, he fled, he rode across the Adriatic to, to Italy and established his own uh, republic there. So the Republic of San Marino was named after him. So he was a Dalmatian who fled. I guess we're Dalmatians who fled. Yeah. <laughs> and what was, a, what was a gum digger? This is uh, cowrie gum. So oh, right. in the far north of New Zealand you have uh, uh, cowrie forests covered all of the north. And the, uh, the resin that grows in the pith of the cowrie tree uh, is a gum substance. And a lot of these trees had been knocked over thousands of years ago, buried in swamps. And the, the gum was still there, buried quite deep down. Uh, and they, they needed people to dig uh, holes in the ground to get down and find this gum. So you could actually spear for it, um, the, the long, thin metal spear into the ground and find pieces of gum by the sound, by the feel of it, and then they would dig down. And quite a few um, men from Dalmatia came out to New Zealand in the early 1900s, specifically to go and work on the gum fields because it was it was quite lucrative for them. Oh wow! And so that's what what brought your family originally out with that work. That's, that was my grandfather. Well, both grandfathers actually. Dad's father came out in 1902, and uh, my uh, maternal grandfather, uh, James Sutich, came out at about the same time. But, he, but they went to different parts of the north, but they were both gum diggers. But when the gum ran out, then 
the Dalmatian people um, looked for other things to do and they ended up um, either farming or many in orchards, uh, fishing, but quite a few in, in the wine business as well. Cool. That's a bit of a love of labour of the land yep. through the generations. Well, back in the old country, uh, most of them living in the village had access to grapes and they made their own wine. So it was part of one of the everyday things that you did uh, was that you had wine and um, or made wine. It's one of the, the cheapest and easiest forms of calories that they could get hold of because to to get food, you know, meat was very expensive. They, they grew vegetables, but if they could get grapes and make wine, then they could have this high-energy drink for the rest of the year. And that, that's why it was so important to people of the Mediterranean. Oh, wow, that's fair. I'm always interested in like, the history of why we do what we do, and we just kind of take it for granted now. <laughs> so it's fascinating. Um, I might just triple-check the vine quickly because I wouldn't want to lose this. It seems a bit low. It was like kombucha, apparently, that was uh, developed by the agents to ferment water that wasn't potentially drinkable, so the fermentation was, and it was kind of a health look so it could stay hydrated. And, um, and there's also, you know, in the UK, they couldn't drink the water out of the Thames, so they made small beer. You know, a, oh, beer, yeah, the same. Something around about 2% to drink it all the time. Okay, after that, potentially. Uh, Technical delay. What would be? Um, <laughs> I was just talking about mistakes. What would be the? Have you had any momentum kind of failures in terms of brewing or or wines that have gone bad over the years or no. big mistakes? No, it's been <laughs> it's pretty smooth. Not. <laughs> well, it's, it's also it's not quite like brewing where you know with brewing you can get the recipe and you get all the ingredients and away you go. Whereas winemaking, you have one chance a year. Mm. Um, to do it and get it right, and so I think um, they tend to be very, very um, careful <laughs> about what they do with, with the, you know, with the grapes. Um, the the only one that I, I could mention uh, would have been in 1988. Uh, would probably, in our memory, been the only really disastrous vintage, and that was the year of Cyclone Bowler. So it was a really unusual set of climatic circumstances that, that ended up with a cyclone coming down the east coast of Australia and then crossing over the Tasman, doing almost a loop and then coming over the North Island and it uh, wreaked havoc. Just uh, a lot of rain and for us a lot, a lot of rot in the vineyard and there was a, so many grapes out there that we couldn't use because they just rotted so badly. But um, quite a bit of the Chardonnay had Botrytis that was quite good botrytis, the noble rock. So we, we harvested it anyway and made a small quantity of this wine, um, which, when I tasted it after fermentation, reminded me of a Vinsanto from, from Italy, which is a, a wine that's made basically from raisins. And so we fortified it, rather than throw it away, we fortified it and made it into a fortified style of wine. That, at the end of it all, wasn't really that good. <laughs> it had um, it, it divided opinion. Some people actually really enjoyed it, and others didn't. Um, I think one person described it as Michael's mistake. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, you're talking about Sauvignon Blanc, though. No, I'm talking about the, um, oh, the yeah, Vincenta, the, yeah. yeah, the Santo Marino. Oh, yeah. But it was, oh, that really wasn't a mistake in, in winemaking. It was just, it was the just really, purely really the pure, mm. purely bad vintage. Because <laughs> well, and what's a fortified wine for those who? It's a wine sure about some of these terminologies. It's a wine where you add alcohol. So most wine is made with alcohol being fermented by the yeast. So the yeast take sugar and the juice and convert it into ethanol. Um, but when you make a fortified wine, you take some pure spirit that's been made through the distillation process and add that to augment the alcohol. So instead of the wine being, say, 12 or 13%, it's lifted to 18 or 19%. And that alcohol content is just more... What's the benefit of having that higher percentage? It, uh, it turns it into a totally different style. So you go away from what we call a table wine style to a dessert or a fortified style. So it's, it's richer because the alcohol gives you a lot more viscosity. So it's a more syrupy tasting wine. Uh, often there is a bit of sweetness involved, so that is there also. And the alcohol is there to stop it going off. So these wines can then be aged for a long period of time in barrels without developing vinegary type characters. So you fortify it to a level above a point where, where bacteria will grow and then it ages a different way. It ages more oxidatively and you end up with, with what we call rancio characters in the wine. And that, that fortified style wine is quite different to most of the wines we make. Cool. And because you, so the family moved to Kimu, but when they purchased the land, did they know it was going to be a good wine country? Because it's a, like you think of these different regions and well, I looked at like Villa Maria and Cumia and some of these places in and around Auckland is yeah. kind of... Look, when, when they came to New Zealand from Dalmatia, they were just amazed at how easy it was to grow things here because we have good soil, we've got quite a lot of rainfall, and uh, it, it was much better growing all sorts of things than it was back in the old country. So um, our family's priority was to get on the land somewhere. And the reason they bought the land here was because it was cheap. In those days, it was way out in the country. It was old gum land, heavy clay soil. So it wasn't the best, most fertile soil, but it, it's what they could afford. And they, for many years, um, milked cows but they also grew pumpkins and they grew uh, they had an orchard but they had grapes as well and one of the attractions for when they bought the place was that the previous owner who was another Dalmatian uh, already had a vineyard on it and he had a winemaker's license so apart from the farming the milking the um, growing crops and that type of thing there was wine as well and that's what really attracted my father he was most interested in. Oh, very cool. And then the you've kind of picked the reins up and the wines become the predominant. Um, well, he turned it into the predominant yeah. use of, of, the, of the land that we've got here. But because it wasn't the best land, uh, it's probably well, definitely a, a good thing because uh, grapes actually do quite well on, on heavy clay soil that's not particularly fertile. We, we have plenty of rainfall, we don't have to irrigate, 
but um, we didn't know what was going to do well here so we had to really look at it long term and plant a whole lot of different varieties and see what was going to work and the variety that's shown up as being by far the best of them all is Chardonnay and that's and that's what does well in this area it's what we've done very well with too cool so that's um it's almost like a trial by error you're yep. you, there's no kind of the, this is probably the art and the science and that's more the art side of is it just kind of knowing the land and what works over time well the vineyard just across the road here you know called hunting hill which is now entirely chardonnay uh, when that was planted in 1881 um they planted cabernet franc and chardonnay sauvignon blanc cabernet sauvignon as well and then over the years basically got rid of the, the ones that didn't do as well the cabernet sauvignon got pulled out fairly early on because it wasn't getting consistently ripe enough. And um, Sauvignon Blanc did quite well for a while, but it, it was never as good as the, the Chardonnay. And the Cabernet Franc did okay also, but again, it was never as good as the Chardonnay. So um, um, when it came to replanting it, it just made sense to replant most of it, if not all of it, with Chardonnay. Cool. And um, I saw you'd gone to the blind tastings too that kind of made you quite big in, in, the, in the world, would that? Well, our, our wines for a long time have been recognised as, as being somewhat like the white wines of Burgundy, which are also made from Chardonnay. So stylistically, we, there is a definite similarity. And one of our best customers in the UK, uh, Far Vintners, have often used our wines in blind tastings up against white Burgundy. Uh, and often fool people into thinking that our wine is a pretty high quality Grand Cru or Premier Cru white burgundy. So a few years ago, I remember Stephen Browett saying to us, well, look, next time one of you is over in, in London, let's do it properly. Let's do a serious tasting. We'll invite some really important wine writers and we'll get some decent white burgundy and we'll serve it all blind and see what happens. And... I mean, that's a scary thing to do in many respects, but uh, both him and us were pretty confident that we'd do well and that if we didn't you know, do really well, at least we would be recognised as being along the same lines, on the same page, but considerably better value. And then uh, in May last year, Paul went over and uh, attended this tasting and he had some really important people there. Yeah, <clears throat> well, Stephen sent me a list of all the wines that um, he had of ours at Far Vintners, and he said, well, pick which wines you want to show. And we wanted to show a range of vintages. <laughs> that sounds good to answer. And, um, and uh, with the range of vintages, we had 2012 Estate Chardonnay, 2010 Coddington Chardonnay, 2000. And nine Matty's Vineyard and 2007 Hunting Hill. So it was, you know, wines which were relatively young and also wines that were relatively old. And then uh, Stephen chose the uh, the Burgundies to put us hot alongside them. And so with the 2012, he had some 2012 uh, village level Burgundies from Merceau, Chassan Montrachet, and, uh, and Perlini Montrachet um, to um, from some very, very good growers. You know, names like Domaine Le Fleve, Domaine Sose, Lafon. And then with the uh, Coddington, it was 
premier crew Chassan Montrachets, and with Matty's Vineyard, it was premier crew Mersos, and with the Hunting Hill 07, it was premier crew um, Huleni Montrachets, again from you know, top-named uh, growers. And the wines, in terms of price, were ranging from double the price of the Kemi River up to 10 times the price of the Kemi River. And uh, each flight was served blind amongst um, all the attendees. And at the end of each flight, everybody gave their scores of what they, <coughs> what they thought of the wines. And um, we collated everything at the end and uh, were very pleased to find out that Kimmy River came top of every flight except for one, where we came first equal. And, um, and part of the process was also people trying to identify the Kimmy River Chardonnay at the end of each flight. And after the first two flights, um, uh, a lot of the tasters, probably a decent amount of them were... were recognising the Kimu, but the first two flights was probably about half and half. Um, but by the third and fourth flights, I think, uh, the tasters started to understand the, the Kimu River style and, and, and just see it. And so they, they, they started to, even, even though it was blind, they started to be able to identify which they thought, thought were ours. But this is after they'd, they'd scored all the wines in each flight. And they still thought it was better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it must have been an amazing feeling coming out of that. It was a nice uh, room to be sitting in and our importer said um, I was sitting there just looking quite smug. I, was quite, <laughs> I wasn't trying to, <laughs> but it was just a really, really um, quite an amazing um, tasting to have all these you know, people reading out their scores and our wines coming on top and I don't think I was smug, I was just you know, blown away. Yeah, wow. Because there's that movie, Bottle Shock, is it? Which is a similar story yeah. of the Americans versus the French. Yeah, well, Bottle Shock is, is that story that, that, um, of that tasting that Stephen Spurrier did, uh, comparing some of the best wines in France with California wines, and the California wines doing so well. Um, I don't think this was you know, exactly the same, but... Um, the reaction to it was extraordinary because the publicity that it generated through the people who were there, like Francis Robinson and um, uh, Neil Martin, um, just went not quite viral, but just spread so quickly. It spread very quickly, and um, even half an hour to an hour after tasting, um, all the all the um, internet sort of Twitter things were were going quite mad. Um, and that was that was great to start with, but then a few weeks later, when you know the articles uh, about the tasting started to appear, that was like another little wave of of interest, and it really did um, uh, spread widely. Because we started hearing from customers in other parts of the world that um, a we'd never sold to before, or b um, we hadn't sold to for a while, and they they got reminded of our wines and and, and they were interested again. So um, it really did help. Um, Promote the you know, promote the interest in our wine, but not only, only that. Um, particularly with Genesis Robinson and Neil Martin, they were uh, adamant at promoting the the idea that New Zealand Chardonnay in general is uh, is a terrific thing and, and should be um, and should be seeked out, and um, it certainly helped that cause as well. So you got at least then two components to the business of the actual product, and then getting the word out there, the marketing. What's the what has been the traditional way, or what is the like? Who do you have to influence, or what do you have to do to get get into these places now? Because it's obviously a pretty competitive 
I think always it has always been um, winemakers in general haven't necessarily been you know big outfits. You know, the, the, there have been quite small players who can actually produce something of high quality and and through that make um, enough noise to, to get you know, recognised. And so um, sometimes the the word of mouth style of, of marketing can be very very important, particularly if you are small. And then if you in that word of mouth, if there are key influences there that spread it a bit further, that, that's fantastic. And um, you know, for people the size that we are, you're not talking about a huge volumes of wine. You're, you're talking about you know, a decent volume of wine. But having that sort of word of mouth and that sort of influence becomes important. If you're a very very large winery, then you know other forms of marketing and advertising become uh, become key. But places in Burgundy, in particular, some of those domains, they don't make a lot of wine and. Um, if um, the word of mouth that producer A is producing something very, very special, because it's so small, people will beat a path to that guy's door to try and get a few bottles of this terrific wine and, and, and are prepared to pay for it. So that's, I'm not saying we're that small, but it, that's the sort of marketing that um, that can work for uh, for us. Cause you got, so is it, cause you got a lot of restaurants and you got obviously your sellers overseas, mm -hmm. you're saying, and then, um and then your own distribution channels in New Zealand, I guess. Is there one, where does most of the wine go to, is it? About half of it is still sold in New Zealand. Yeah. And then um, the UK, of the export um, markets we have, the UK is the biggest, then followed by Australia, US, and then beyond that, um, it gets a bit smaller with Canada, parts of Asia, and other parts of Europe, such as Sweden, Denmark, Poland, Netherlands. Um, and, um, through all those markets, so you know, we, we sell all the wine. With this tasting, that was, um, I think, the highlight for us was to be looked upon as being on the same page and the same style as these great white wines of Burgundy. And 20 or 30 years ago, they were still relatively affordable, these wines. But because it's a very restricted area, they are famous, they are very good, the prices now are quite high. So when we can come into the market with a, a wine style that is similar, not exactly the same, but of the same level of quality, but considerably cheaper, then it's a win-win. Mm. And uh, that, that for us has been fantastic because we're, we're now recognised as being in that league, but, but representing very good value. So they're wines that people aren't just going to go and collect or save for special occasions, these are wines that people can drink and still get the same type of experience that they get with those really expensive ones. Beautiful. And what, did you have a... Can I just interrupt just yeah, for no a worries. second? Yeah, jump up. That phone call was Kelly. Yeah. She was trying to ring you. The Tyler's going to be there in about five minutes. Okay. And she oh. would like you to be there. Okay. If you've got any time constraints or yeah. um, need to jump out, take calls, no, no worries. The other point about that tasting, I've had two prominent winemakers in New Zealand who also make Chardonnay come up to me and say, that was great, thanks for doing that, because <laughs> we, because as a result, we're selling more Chardonnay in, in, in those markets. That's what I was interested in, in terms of whether you had a goal to bring people to New Zealand in general or to be a, 
a flagship wine and want to stay small or to you know because obviously you can take it in many directions but obviously you're putting New Zealand on the map and well, are you limited to, to growth here or are you happy just producing quality or is it do you want to get it out to the world as much as, as any kind of... I think the size focus? we are is, is about right yep. and, uh, and has expanded over the last five, five or six years. But also in, in terms of actually keeping the quality of where it is, um, you can't push it too far in terms of quantity. You know, it's, um, it's a case of making sure you keep everything on the same level that, 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 that we have done. And, um, and so, yeah, quality is the, is the most important part. Particularly to try and keep up with them, um, and keep producing the wines that did well in that tasting. Yeah, because the logistics, everything's harvested. Is it by hand, by machine? Yes. Yeah, by hand, and then uh, fermented, bottled on site. So the whole production facilities here, as well as the producing. Everything from growing the grapes through to the final bottling is is done here. Through the drinking of it occasionally yes. as well. <laughs> <laughs> and at the moment, we can keep on top of it. Yeah. You know, the pressing is absolutely critical. So we've got whole bunches going into a pneumatic press and then getting the juice exactly the right way requires supervision. So you've got to have people who know what they're doing, doing that operation. And when you get too big, you dilute all of that talent, if you like, and it gets harder and harder to, to maintain it at that standard. Uh, we have over 700 barrels going through fermentation, so we've got to keep on top of all that too. Much more than that, again, you need more people. So, so you're having to delegate authority more and more, and it's a step away from, from what you're trying to do, so it becomes more and more difficult. Paul's quite right. I think we're at about the right volume at the moment to maintain a very high standard, a very a very intimate association with, with the wines that we're making that we can maintain the quality at a very high standard. If we were to expand too much more, then we might lose a bit of that. We don't know. We'll, we'll certainly give it a bit of a push because we, we do want to expand a bit, but again, not too much. Yeah, well, I love that movement towards farmers' markets and local growers and more boutique craft products or where there's a connection to the grower and the seller and the... Yep. And the story as well, which I think is what's been valued now, which is nice. We um, we try to keep that going. I mean, when you look around our winery, it's it's not what you would call a small winery, but it's not a big one either. And uh, being being able to keep control of everything is, to me, very important. Um, also, the fact that um, the operations in the winery follow a seasonal thing, so that we. Um, the, the year in the vineyard and the year in the winery have an annual cycle. So you're not doing the same thing every day. We don't have staff over there bottling every day, for example. We, we bottle 30 days a year, that's it. Um, for the rest of the time, there are other operations. So vintage comes along, you're actually making the wine, doing the fermentation, but then a few weeks later, it moves into another phase, into an electric fermentation, then there's, then there's the bottling of the the wines from the previous year, then we we move into packaging and labelling and then there's pruning and then there's other... So there's things that keep everybody in tune with their environment. Uh, it's in 
you're in tune with the seasons, you're in tune with the vineyards, and it's it's nice to keep it that way. Otherwise, you just become a manufacturing factory. Mm. You know, you're just buying grapes and turning it into wine, and there's there's not a lot of connection back to the land and to the vineyard and to the environment that I think you you really have to have if you want to produce truly fine wine. And what would a what would the season look like in terms of if you'd never knew how wine was produced, what would, when the grapes grow and when do you harvest okay. and when? Well, if you're looking at the vineyard season, it really starts about now. So in the last few weeks, we've had bud burst. So the uh, recently pruned vines, uh, the buds that were left behind, um, burst into shoots and they're growing now. So a lot of those shoots are between centimetre or so long up to about, I've seen them out there, about 150 centimetres, sorry, 150 millimetres. Um, and so that's springtime and that brings its own risks because uh, if it's wet like it is today, there's quite a high risk of uh, fungal infection, so you have to keep on top of that. Um, there's also a risk, a risk of frost at this time of the year because we're not quite out of the wintry time if we get conditions we can get a frost then later on in the spring the shoots keep growing and then you have flowering flowering happens uh, normally towards the end of November beginning of uh, December and that that determines your crop really for the following year because depending on how the flowers set they, they become berries then you have the ripening period right through December January and into February and the grapes ripen and are picked during March and into April. So that is the busiest time of the year when we we have about 60 people here working, uh, hand-picking all the grapes, and those grapes have to be turned into juice. Uh, and with the whites, we, we use whole bunch pressing for that. Uh, the reds are a very small part of our production these days, but they go through a destemmer crusher before fermentation. So the red grapes are fermented together with their skins, which gives them the red colour. Uh, the white grapes, on the other hand, the juice is separated away from the skins and the seeds and the pulp, and it's just the juice that goes into fermentation. And quite a, a large amount of our fermentation, of Chardonnay in particular, uh, takes place in wooden barrels, but then we've got stainless steel tanks as well, which, which we use for Pinot Gris and some of the Chardonnays. So the fermentation process starts during vintage, so that's in March, and it continues for a few weeks or a few months. Not, not all of the fermentations go through quickly. It can take two or three months sometimes. But the wine will also need to go through a malolactic fermentation as well, which is a, a bacterial transformation that turns uh, malic acid into lactic acid which is a softening of the acidity and makes the wine a bit more complex. But in the vineyard, after harvest, all the leaves fall off about the same time of the year. And uh, once we get to June, July, then we'll start pruning. So all the vines have to be resized. A lot of the old wood cut off, new wood laid down, which has got the buds that will then burst in August and September and start the cycle again. So that that's basically your annual cycle. Oh, beautiful. And you've got, uh, is it Nigel who's yes. 
So you got someone who's in charge of measuring the, the actual science of lucidity, and I guess you've got certain. Nigel qualities. does. Nigel does a lot of that. We've yeah. also got Pete in the winery, who's a qualified winemaker. There's myself as well. I still do a little bit of that, but those two guys do do most of the lab work on that. But I still monitor fermentations and do things like that, and keep an eye on on what's coming in, how the pressing's going. Um, Supervising all of those aspects are absolutely critical to the uh, the quality that we get out at the end. But then it's people like Nigel and Pete and uh, Jed in the winery too, now who who do the day to day operations, the moving of the wine around, um, the bottling, all that kind of stuff. Every step is is its own important little thing, and it's it's the addition of all these little steps that adds up to quality at the end. But the most critical parts are vineyard, without good grapes you can't make good wine, uh, the hand harvesting, absolutely critical, whole bunch pressing, getting the, the right fraction of juice out of the grapes that you put in the press, and then the fermentation itself, and then looking after all of that later on, right up to bottling. Um, they're all critical steps. Yeah, I like that saying for... So the details that count, there are no details or there are no small things. Um, well, that's right. You know, you think, well, maybe it's an addition of, of a whole lot of small things, but in fact, every one of them is a big thing. Yeah. Beautiful. And going back to um, your role in the, the winery, because you were New Zealand's first master of wines, yep. which, and what does that entail? How did you get to that level? The, the Institute of Masters of Wine is, is based in London and it's a trade organisation that's dedicated to wine education and improving um, knowledge about wine. So the people who uh, pass the exam and become Masters of Wine tend to be people in, in the English wine trade. And up until uh, 19, uh, 1986... It was an exclusively English wine trade organisation. Then they decided to internationalise and invite people from around the world who were qualified enough, and, and that included having spent at least five years in the wine trade, to apply to do the exam. And um, uh, the first international MW is Michael Hillsmith from Australia, and he passed in 1988. Uh, then there were two of us in 1989, myself and Olivier Hombrecht, who's a winemaker also from France. So um, the reason you would do an exam like that is, I guess, just because it's there and it's notoriously difficult. So um, I, I had the opportunity and I had a go and managed to pass on the first attempt, which is a bit unusual, but... Uh, I guess if I hadn't passed on the first attempt, I might have given up. <laughs> it is notoriously difficult. It's, it involves both wine knowledge and wine tasting. And uh, as an organisation, we're still quite small. We only have, uh, even now, 350 members. Um, so they f I think it's a line that's been used quite a bit, that there are more people who have looked back at Earth from space than have passed the... Master of Wine exam. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> uh, 
a nice club to be part of. It is. Well, that's exactly what it is. It's a nice yeah. club. But my my job and my primary qualification is as a winemaker. So I went to Agricultural College in South Australia and learnt enology, which is the science of winemaking. And a very big component of that course was also viticulture. You can't make can't make wine without grapes, and we're very fortunate that uh, in Millen we have a very good um, viticulturist as well who looks after the vineyards and keeps them immaculately. Um, and he's very clever in what he does in producing grapes of extremely high quality that we can then uh, turn into some pretty amazing wine. Well, that's, yeah, I love the, the family, the roles you've all got. And so Mellon did a similar training, Australia did he as well? No, he, um, he's a chemical engineer by, by trade, so, so he did an engineering uh, degree, then worked in, uh, in the milk sector for a while, but then uh, I wanted to come back in, into the family business, and because I was already here as winemaker, he really didn't have the opportunity to get into the wineries so much, but because he is an engineer, he has a lot to do with the winery as well. And as Paul said earlier, we, we cross over into each other's fields quite a bit. And a lot of my training is in viticulture, so I've had a, quite a big input into what happens in the vineyards, although I don't have a day-to-day -day role in that. And what's, uh, what's the toughest thing about being a family, a family <laughs> business? Um, or the best, or yeah. it's got to be a... I don't know if it's tough, because working with your family, uh, I think, is great. Um, because we, most of the time, get on pretty well, but, but we understand each other and we know where we're coming from, and, and it's, it's not all about furthering your career or climbing up the corporate ladder or doing anything like that, because we, we all share in this, and... Um, you know, we all help each other out, and we, and because we are a good team, we're, we're all doing better out of it than than we would if we were on our own. So, all of us bring something to the table. All of us contribute to the success of the company, and and we all share in that too. Beautiful. And um, what are the? Because there's a lot of kind of maybe mysticism in most industries and what like how, how can someone separate when they're buying wine because you go into the supermarket it's almost overwhelming I've always just kind of looked at labels or, or referrals by friends and what's it is very difficult for the average wine consumer to go into any wine outlet and and, and know exactly what to buy because the, the range of quality and price is huge and it's never been bigger, really. So consumers have a choice. We as winemakers have a responsibility to do the best we can by them and produce things that represent value. And value, in some cases, might be a hundred or several hundred dollars a bottle because you deliver something exceptional that's still quite a bit cheaper than the thousands of dollars a bottle of the same type of wine coming from a traditional European area. But at the same time, we, we all have to recognise that wine is just a drink. Mm. And as a drink, it needs to, you know, 
a lot of it has to be at a reasonable price. And we're very conscious of that. Uh, so quite a big chunk of our production is wines that we would say are entry-level wines, you know, $15, less than $20, that type of um, level, which are affordable, type of wine that you can afford to drink every day if you really want to. And, but we're not in the real cheap stuff. You know, we're not less than $10 a bottle or anything like that um, when we go out to retail. And uh, that's important. It, it's got to be reasonable quality at a reasonable price, but then at the same time, we, we have aspirations to make much better quality wine as well. And for that, we need to get a better return. So a few of our wines sold for $50, $60, $70 a bottle. But our most expensive wine currently is $70. Uh, sounds like a lot of money for a bottle of wine, but when you compare it with quite a few other producers, including New Zealand makers, we're, we're pretty reasonably priced. Does it, it work a little bit like the fashion industry where you have your prestige or the, the avant-garde kind of shows and the money's really made in the kind of lower-end or the slightly cheaper products that everyone can afford, is that generally how it works? A or, bit like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We, we all have different ranges. Um, I guess it's a little bit different to fashion in that it, there is a bit more, I guess, objectivity in the determination of what the quality is. Uh, fashion, it's all the eye of the beholder. In wine, at least there are some standards uh, of objective measurement tasting that, that we can apply to wine um, but then on top of that there's a fair bit of subjectivity as well and that, that I guess is that, that term you would use romance because who was the, the wine critic who was he had like a formula and a team of scientists who would go into Napa in particular I think he wasn't and kind of make a wine that was just going to get a gold standard or a, a certain rating I was trying to remember his name and they're saying a lot of vineyards are starting to lose their, is it the terra firma the, or the... Terroir. Terroir. The, um, yeah. yeah. To, to just get this certain standard, which... I think there are a lot of... Uh, there has been a lot of commentary about some consultants, uh, one in particular who uh, would go into an area and you know, make wine along his style to be able to achieve scores and things like that. I really don't know if... It's as simple as that. I think uh, the individual concerned is just a very, very good winemaker. And a lot of what he does, is n there's nothing magical or formulaic about it. It's just doing things right. And that goes right back to the vineyard. So it's, there's no formula, there's no easy fix. You can't go into an area and just say, well, no, we're going to do this and we're going to you know, make this type of wine. It takes time. Yeah. And uh, it's taken us 30 plus years to get our Chardonnay to a point where it's internationally recognisable. And that's an extremely short period of time compared to what those benchmark wines have taken. If you take you know, the great white wines of Burgundy, the Monarchés, Chassani Monarchés, Fellini Monarchés, Coton Charlemagne, They've been around for hundreds of years and it's taken that long for them to establish their hierarchy. Uh, so when you take the new world 
a relatively new producer coming in and doing what used to take a couple hundred years and do it in 30, that's quite remarkable. Uh, but it's only because of science and communications now. So that us as winemakers have the ability to taste these wines from around the world. I mean, that, that's one of the reasons I did the MW exam was that I was convinced that to be a good winemaker, you had to know what good wine tastes like. I mean, you can make your own wine and think it's the best wine in the world, but unless you have some benchmarks and you recognise that these other wine styles are, are the ones that have been successful for hundreds of years and people have, have been prepared to pay two, three, four times the going rate for these wines because they're that much better, there has to be a reason for that. And if you get the opportunity to taste those wines with people who know about them, then you learn. You learn what's good about them, why they are attractive, why people have spent a lot of money producing and, and, and buying these wines. And then you can translate that into your own situation and try and adapt the quality of fruit that you're growing here now into something that's, that's quite special. Oh, that's yeah, beautifully said. I, yeah, this course, this Tony Robbins course, was in the weekend. Just he, a lot of the talk was about finding the masters and whatever you want to do, and it's been done before. And going to them first, like you yeah. go to the best people and you're gonna you taste the best wines. You're gonna get well, the best understanding. I've had an amazing uh, lineup of mentors over the years. People who I learnt from. You know, line that kind of knowledge up, uh, I've been extremely lucky. We have been extremely lucky because we, we've been able to make contact with these people and, and uh, speak with them at the same kind of level. When I was starting out at Roseworthy, we'd only just heard of a company called Robert Mondavi in the Napa Valley in California. And in his... 60s, Robert Mondavi left family firm and started up his own winery from scratch. And it became famous because he was a good winemaker, his son was a good winemaker, uh, and they, they built the quality image of that up and sold it to the rest of the world. Well, a few years after all that, um, we had the opportunity to meet him. And my parents got to know him quite well, uh, and he was just such a a great man to talk to and to get alongside and uh, he was so generous with his time and his praise of our wines and things like that but you know I keep thinking about how do we get to meet the guy like that you know <laughs> and it was really because he's a people person my my father was a very outgoing person got on very well with people and we we're just we're all wine people and we, and we understand each other but uh, to be able to rub shoulders with, with people like that has been amazing. And he's not the only one. I mean, there's lots of others who we've, we've had the opportunity to meet and talk with and, uh, and learn from. Cool, I love that. And because it kind of almost leads me on to is if you had kind of a dinner with three people or who, who would you have around the table in terms of sharing a glass of wine and some food with yeah it's um, well there are a few I guess heroes that, that 
that we have when it comes to wine. And uh, one of those would be Henri Jaillet. He's, um, he's dead now, but he was an amazing winemaker who I'd never had the opportunity to meet, uh, but just his wines are legendary. So he would probably be at the top of my list. Um, I just can't really think of the others. <laughs> outside, are there, is there any passions outside of winemaking that you have as well? Um, a compliment or take your mind away from it if it's I wish I did uh, <laughs> yeah I used to go trout fishing a little bit but uh, then I got married um, but uh, no, we just keep up to date with a lot of sport and things like that um, I've been involved in a local cricket club for a number of years and I guess that, that's been a bit of a uh, sideline that has kept me Busy and occupied, much less so now. But my son's playing cricket now. Did play a bit of sport earlier on, but not much these days. But do follow it. Cool. Um, and uh, is there anything you'd like to see changed in the wine industry or in the world? If you had, there's this question, and uh, Tim Ferriss often asks, if you had one billboard in the world, what would you have on it? <laughs> or is it? <laughs> I couldn't have just one thing. Um, no, in terms of um, in the in the wine business, um, I think people do have to remember that it is just a drink. It's it's a really special beverage. It gives us all a lot of pleasure, but it is just a drink. Uh, I think we we can um, be accused of getting a little bit too precious about it sometimes. And the fact that it contains alcohol can cloud things a bit. Um, it has to be recognised that alcohol is a substance that, um, even though we as humans are very well adapted to coping with it, it must be consumed in moderation. And uh, the best way to, to moderate that is to have it with food as an adjunct to food. And that, that's certainly the culture that our family comes from, that um, just about every, well, every uh, lunchtime, every dinner would, would be associated with wine. Here in New Zealand, we don't do that so much. Occasionally we will have wine at lunch, but I think most of us have wine at dinner. And uh, it, it's just an adjunct to, to a good life. Uh, but it is just a drink. Yeah, that's something I'm interested in this uh, Michael Pollan series on. Have you heard of him? He's kind of a, a food writer in America, but researched the history of all the foods, like how we've used fire to yep. break down foods and evolve our evolution, and ferment foods from chocolate to wine to. Yep. And, but how it can be so. We lost the social element, which has been the joy part of yeah. like people in such a rush to eat something, consume a certain nutrient, yeah. and move on, and That's right. forgetting that the cooking and the preparing and the harvesting and the sitting down at lunch, like you say, is the there's the there's like a value to that yep. beyond. Uh, well, there's a, a movement in Italy called the slow food movement, which is all about that. That it's the antithesis to fast food. That slow food is all about growing things properly, preparing them well, 
taking time to consume them with family and friends. And wine fits into that really well because it, you do, you need to take time. Sit down, it helps digestion, it helps loosen people up a little bit as long as you don't overdo it. And that, that's a message that we grew up with all the time. We, wine was always available to us. I'm convinced that part of the, the binge drinking culture that we have in New Zealand stems from the early prohibition times when it was impossible to get a drink or if you if you wanted to have a drink you had from when you knocked off at five o'clock until six o'clock that's the only time you could go to the pub and have a drink and of course they just crammed it in drank as much as they could you know it, it's just nuts absolute nuts and when when they went to um, ten o'clock closing the people who opposed it the most were the brewers because they realised people would drink less. They'd take longer to do it. They wouldn't do the binge drink. And it was dead right too. Every, every time liquor consumption in New Zealand has been more liberalised, it's resulted in a decrease in consumption. People don't, don't, don't remember that. You know, with, with, and all the publicity about certain events and drink, binge drinking and people in pubs late at night and all that kind of stuff comes to the fore. People want to restrict it more. But in fact, if you liberalise it, normalise it to a point where people don't abuse it, then it, it becomes irrelevant. Yeah, I've been intrigued even in my own behaviour why I don't or have this... I don't have any need to do it and, and I've grown up in a family of foodies and my dad was a French trained chef and there was always wine you could if I wanted to have a smoke or try something that was available and I never had any any need to rebel and I was mm. listening to a he was one of the world's best uh, band managers for all kinds of bands but um, he was very best of the best mixed with the Beatles and I'm trying to think of the rock star who he had but his whole marketing campaign was for this one particular guy was to get all the parents to hate him. He was like, if the parents hate him, they're gonna tell the kids not to go and the kids are all gonna to wanna to go. And it was like <laughs> and he did this campaign where they blocked traffic in the middle of Sydney and the middle of London and and caused this huge stir and all the parents on the radio complaining about this one guy's concert and of course he just sold it out and um yeah, it's, it's this human psyche, like oh, how yeah. we repress yeah. things and they just pop up well, in other ways. When, um, two instances, when, when the Waikato region was dry, uh, you couldn't, there were no pubs, you couldn't buy, buy liquor. Um, they used to sell more liquor into King Country and the Waikato than they do now. And also when there were restrictions during wartime, you know, when, when everything was rationed, they used to sell a lot more. <laughs> I feel like marijuana is maybe going through that in America now, and <laughs> That's certain right. plants have been medicinal and been in cultures for yep. centuries, and it's like people while, come in just trying to make money off them and make it illegal. While, while it was illegal, keeps the price up. You know, um, we we often say, you know, if, if if alcohol got restricted even more and more, and they brought in prohibition, well, then we could make some real money. Oh, it's a crazy. I think with the with the internet and people, you, 
people like yourself sharing that message, hopefully it really kind of, I feel like it's on that trend in terms of the people I know. Yeah. Opening up it's, certain industries and mindsets. Yeah, but moderation is really important when it comes to consumption of wine. Never to overdo it. Have it with food because it always helps with, with the consumption. It, it reduces the impact. And uh, then you start to see some health benefits rather than the kind of problems that you can get through, through over, over con consumption of alcohol. It's so interesting because everything's tried to be, and even in yoga and movement, in terms of segmenting things like this one muscle does this, and it's like the whole body moves in unison. We do so many things at once, and to try and isolate one thing and have that as a scapegoat and this is a mm. you know to, yeah and it came back to that Michael Pollan tour of the food advertising creating good and bad foods fats versus sugars versus mm. and creating whole campaigns around this trying to change behaviour and it's like everything works in harmony as an right. organism and as, and speak going back to food is there I had a wonderful lunch out here one time when we were doing the catching up with the guys for the website, but is there, um, what kind of food do you like to, to match your wine with, or eat in New Zealand, or local Croatian dishes, or what's the... I think uh, in New Zealand we're, we're blessed with uh, some amazing seafood. Uh, and with the wine styles that we have, predominantly Chardonnay of course, uh, they are very well suited to seafood. So are, are the white fish pan-fried, so pan-fried snapper, teriyaki, gurnard, goes really well with our our wine. Uh, scallops, great match, prawns. The ultimate one, though, is crayfish. And if we ever you know, really want to treat ourselves, some local crayfish with our Hunting Hill Chardonnay, for example, is just fantastic. So, so that's one side of it. Um, the other thing that goes well with Chardonnay is uh, chicken. And it's really good to see that in New Zealand uh, the availability of better quality chicken is, is on, the, on the rise. So we're seeing much more good uh, um, free-range farm chickens rather than um, cage-raised. Uh, they taste so much better. My, my grandmother used to raise them here, and I, I can still remember the taste of those just so much better than, than we had years later. But that's coming back now. Yeah. So Chardonnay with, with poultry is really good too. Um, we, we also like red meat. and um, So one of the things that my father did very well, and us boys and Mariana as well have continued, is, is barbecuing steak on open fire so tea tree grill and it's the, the flavors are fantastic but with that you really do need red wine that's why we still make red wine <laughs> i love that but that? it's it's not a big part of our production anymore yeah. it used to be much more significant pinot noir is about five percent of what we make um have you seen francis melvin have you heard of him there's a european chef of the year i think will reach the highest standard but he um gave up all the fine dining to go by an island in patagonia and cook these giant feasts on these massive open flames and these oh, yeah. the way he would like uh split the meat on these wooden sticks and yep. have them 
and these different styles of Argentinian barbecues and salting Asa the asado. fish. Asado. They call it. Oh, do they? Yeah. yeah. Well, asado is just a barbecue, but, yeah. but when they split the whole animal like that, that yeah. that's fantastic. Yeah, and everything's on open fire. It's talked about the, the, the there's like ten or more temperatures to the fire, and just using each one. There's and, uh, there's a place in Ponsonby Central called Chorizo Grill, Argentinian Grill. And they they do lamb that way over a big fire. Yeah, it's fantastic. Is there any restaurants in New Zealand and Auckland that you that you really enjoy? Oh yes, um, <laughs> uh, I think particularly. Uh, French Cafe yep. is uh, absolutely outstanding, but we also really like The Grove. Um, uh, for many years, you know, it's a bit more traditional style, uh, but uh, I'm a great fan of Antoine's. Sure. Uh, I think they, they, they've been around for nearly as long as we have. <laughs> and, uh, He's a fantastic chef, and I, I really like his approach to food. Yeah, beautiful. And what about um in the in the world? Is there if you went in Cumu, or where do you like to go to? Do you like to get to, to go to France to any particular countries? Back to Croatia. Um, I could have just oh asked. yeah yeah no ask yeah. that no worries we can. Somebody's got it. Um, yeah. We've all been pretty fortunate over the years to, to get the opportunity to go to wine areas in France and Italy. Uh, I've never been to Spain. I really want to go there. But I, but I have spent a lot of time in France, more recently in Italy. Um, Croatia as well. I mean, both myself and, well, my, my wife's family is also from there. So uh, we, we've had a chance to visit family over there and stay with them. And it's pretty amazing. It's it's improved a lot. I mean, Yugoslavia under communism really went went backwards, but uh, in, in recent years it's coming back into more entrepreneurial style country and uh, doing quite well. Um, I I really do want to go to Spain. <laughs> Heard a lot about it, and uh, yeah, that would be fantastic. Um, I also enjoy going to Australia. I think um, Australia uh, has got so much going for it. It's a fantastic wine growing region as well. We we have a lot in common with Australia and Australians. I I really enjoy the country. Uh, I've learnt a lot from them from a winemaking perspective, and uh, I just love love visiting the country. It's very much like New Zealand, but it's completely different as well, and that, that's a nice thing about it. Mm, beautiful. Um, well, it might be uh, about to wrap it up, I guess, um, for people who want to try your wines and and follow what you guys are up to, as they're obviously coming out to Cumu's a great, you got the tasting room here, Yep. Um, is a good option, but any, any recommendations of wines to try and... Uh, well, our Chardonnays are really good. We, yeah. we make five different labels of Chardonnay, from the entry-level Cumia Village Chardonnay through the estate, Coddington Hunting Hill, Matty's Vineyard. So there are five different types and uh, different price levels. I guess uh, different styles of wine for different occasions. But the village wine is such a, a 
good value place to start uh, and it's readily available around around town and most of the major retailers. Cool. And um, and get a crayfish to go with it. And, <laughs> and I know that they'll go... Actually, one, one dish that I didn't mention was uh, squid. And uh, it's actually, for us, getting harder and harder to get really good stuff because of the demand in, in restaurants, particularly for the particular type of squid that we like. But when my father first came to New Zealand, squid was regarded by New Zealanders as bait. Nobody <laughs> ate it. You know, they go, what, what are you eating that for? It's, that's what we use for bait. You know? Now... Now that the tables have have turned, mm. but it, you know, um, deep fried calamari is just a great a great thing to go with with our wines as well. Yeah, uh, there's a chef's table episode, and and it's a Brazilian guy who goes back to the Amazon, and he has this an LSD trip, but he kind of sees the circle of life and realizes there's no prioritization of flavors or experiences; they're just different. And so he goes back to the Amazon with his working with his local tribes to make and caviar or something is as sought after as any other flavor that the really wealthy in Brazil prioritize. And yeah. so working, you know, these little root vegetables and really cool. Um, and it's funny, I did a dinner at the silos and we did a whole dinner based on bait fish, like sardines and squid and all the mackerel and the things that people just, which in Spain, they salt and people love in different I parts love of the all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, and they're quite oily fish too, so... In, in Croatia, it's the same type of thing. You get sardines, mackerel, slightly bigger mackerel, um, sea bass, all that quite quite oily fish because they're quite a lot smaller. And then you come out here and you get completely different species. You know, it's uh, different environment, different a different way of doing things. But I I love those you know, sardines, anchovies, all that kind of stuff. I think they're they're very good particularly with the type of wine that they produce over there, which is a bit stronger in flavour, not quite as delicate as ours, and, and uh, it can be a little bit oxidative sometimes. And if you look at Spain, sherry, you know, dry sherry is an oxidative style, but it goes so well with those salty sardines or olives, you know, the type of things mm. that they have in tapas. Yeah. Fantastic. It's interesting how all the information is coming out about I wish we were advertising so much, but it's just industries promoting a certain product, and now people figure out like lower down the food chain and locally sourced and what's in season, how much better it is for everyone and for yourself. Um, I think it's a cool, cool trend. Obviously, it's a good local spot here. And um, lastly, any kind of books or films or other wines outside of winemakers you respect or um, other references for people to to have a look at? The wines are just too many to list. <laughs> but, um, you know, one of, one of the things that we've always enjoyed and always aspired to as well is, is high-quality sparkling wine, champagne. Mm. So we, we regard the best producers of champagne as being quite unique and quite quite great. So it's it's been a long time coming, but we're eventually... We, we, we have eventually started to make our own sparkling wine and that's coming out next month. So that, oh, that's something something new and something exciting for us. But um, in terms of movies and books, um, nothing I can 
single out particularly, but may, maybe the Godfather <laughs> trilogy. I just keep watching that and just love every bit of it. And it's interesting that the man who made those, Francis Ford Coppola, is also in the wine business. And he, he bought a historic winery in the Napa Valley and has re-established that. That's all part of what what he does as well. So, yeah, he's he's from the same part of the world really as us. He's Italian. And, uh, yeah, it's it's um, I guess going back to the roots of, of growing things, either whether it's food or wine, uh, is also into art. So so his and his art is uh, motion pictures, and I think those those films are just great. Mm. Oh, beautiful. It's an art what you guys are doing. So um, thanks for your time today, That's Michael. Right. It's pleasure. a pleasure to come check it out and I'll try some of this uh, champagne and maybe pick up a few bottles while I'm here. And um, yeah, it's awesome you're putting New Zealand on the map. I even saw something with the New Zealand yep. you were doing recently around the yep. world. With the, what was that? Well, I'm one of a group of uh, masters of wine and there's a master sommelier as well, Cameron Douglas who are doing some work for New Zealand, selecting um, what we regard as some of the finest examples of wine in New Zealand. Uh, these are wines that have been highly performed for a period of at least five years, often more than 10 years. So they're uh, you know, the gold standard, the, the iconic brands, if you like, of, of their particular styles. And we came up with a list of uh, 53 of them. But that's an ongoing process. There are quite a few other candidates for that. And um, from that list, we'll, we'll be drawn the wines that um, will serve in our business premium. Oh, wonderful. So I actually got a free upgrade the other day. I have to try and get a few more <laughs> samples, samples of the wines. Um, oh, fantastic. Now, I really appreciate your time and Pleasure. what you guys are doing and looking forward to sharing some with uh, some family and friends it's that's a great message i think so okay cool no worries we'll wrap it up there let's get back to making uh making the magic wow what a treat that was and uh hope you enjoyed it and, and took something out of it and it's kind of a taste of the winemaking process and some insights into what they do out at Kimu and Wellworth. It's only just you know a short drive outside of Auckland, and uh, they've got a really cool tasting room out there and some fabulous photos of the family on the vineyards. And so, I highly recommend going out there, pick up some wine. And uh, I mentioned I kind of saw Michael was doing this wine tasting when I was flying premium economy in New Zealand you don't, you don't even need to do that but I would recommend doing it Ooh, what an experience <laughs> um, going to try and uh, put that on the, the bucket list to make that happen a little bit more often and uh, keep this momentum up from my Tony Robbins course which was just life changing and uh, I'm doing his kind of NLP work online and going to really start to try and help people out with the life coaching side of things so I'll, sh I'll have more on that for you shortly as well as more podcasts but with the um with the work tony does it's it's remarkable to turn someone's life around and 
in an instant to, to stop this started to cure someone's kind of depression their mental patterns whatever it might be addiction to cigarettes whatever's holding someone back and to understand the, the, the patterns we have and the and the habits we have and uh, and to just retrain those neural pathways it's a fascinating process and his he's a big proponent of having mentors of having coaches of working with the masters the best in their field so if you're interested in wine again check out Kumu they're one of the best and uh, hopefully I'll have some more info from Tony and uh, other greats and masters from New Zealand sharing their wisdom for you as always share care spread the word spread throw some hugs out there through some random generation uh, generosity and uh, just trying to make the world a better place from the inside out doing what you love what your kind of dharma is and uh, shit yeah tag me in it too I'd love to hear what, what everyone's up to out there so um, I will think less experience more hope you dug it bon appetito au revoir I don't know why I just like dropping French bombs in there. I'm have to learn French. All right. Adios and Spanish. Ciao. And maybe Italian as well. Goodbye. For now.